Hello and welcome to episode 160 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox, and with me in Vienna, Virginia is Ben Olson. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing great. My uh, dad's in town, and so he's helping me fix a leak in the house, which is really helpful. Dude, we have to talk about your dad. Okay. (laughs) I saw a picture on Facebook that you posted of your dad at a research station in Antarctica. That is correct. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me more about that. Okay. Yeah. So this was in 1968 and he went down to Antarctica when he was a student at Stanford, I think, or he had just left. Oh shoot. I should know this. Well, anyways, I'll ask him after this podcast, but uh, sometime when he was doing research and uh, he stayed down there for a year and monitored radio signals or something like that. And I think there were about 60 other people who were on the base with him. And so, you know, you get to know those people really well while you're all trapped down there. Because I guess you can go down during the summer, but you can't leave during the winter, or at least that was the case then, or it's hard to leave in the winter. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So he was just doing research down there for radio waves and stuff like that. He's an electrical engineer. (laughs) <laughs> and has no idea wow. what I'm doing in law, which, you know, I actually left law. So I guess I've somewhat restored, restored his sanity, but. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I just saw that and I was like, oh my God, wow. Ben is, <laughs> I don't know why I did. I just didn't know any, didn't know that about you, but I was like, wow, Ben is not a first generation college student no. <laughs> at all. <laughs> Your dad is like in a research station standing in front of some bank of like impressive looking instruments. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, cool. That that picture's on Facebook. If you want to go, it's on your Facebook page, I guess. I bet. Yeah. People have to. Well, a little funny. Find funny story behind that. I found that well, he sent some pictures in Dropbox. You know, some historical pictures. And of course, back then you didn't take as many pictures because you can only take. Every time you took a picture, it was, it was permanent, right? That was on your roll of film or whatever, and you had thirty-two yeah, yeah. pictures or whatever. Anyway, so he sends these pictures over and I start looking through them and I'm like, oh my gosh, Dad, this picture is awesome. I'm gonna post it on Facebook. And he's like, he's like, oh, okay. Oh, uh, why? You know? <laughs> and I'm like, just it's just cool. You know, people don't it's not for any like reason. He's like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> but wow. anyway. Cool. Well, we're each getting some family time. My mom is coming down on Friday and bringing my 11-year-old niece. And so I'm going to have some time with um, with my mom and Haley over the weekend. So that, that's great. What are you doing with your dad? Well, mainly just fixing the house. He He grew up on a farm, so he's very handy with everything around here. And so we're fixing that leak and then finding other problems and fixing them up. Oh wow! You have to send them over here. I got some stuff that needs to be done around. The house. <laughs> sure. So you're you're in L.A., right? I am in L.A. Yeah. Well, he's in the Bay Area. That's not too far. What six hours to drive down there? Oh yeah, because he has to bring his tools. Mm. Otherwise, I, I buy him a ticket. Oh okay. Southwest. I'll let him know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. So today on the show, we have an interview with Dr. Riaz Tajani, who uh, went to Princeton and got his JD from USC, and he's a social anthropologist, and he wrote a book about uh, for-profit law schools. And um, so we interviewed Dr. Tajani, and uh, that'll be at the top of the show. We also have our usual slate of emails um, on the Facebook group this week, uh, they were talking about the law school applicant who sued Duke 
because he didn't get admitted. Mm. Um, we also have a bunch of stuff about complaints to LSAC about noisy proctors. Uh, apparently it wasn't just pistachios. Apparently there were all kinds of proctor issues and, uh, so much so that the LSAC responded to the students who were complaining. Yeah. Um, and we had a ton of people who emailed us about, uh, there was, I guess a news story came out about, uh, Antonin Scalia law school, which wait, that's in your neck of the woods, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's about 15 minutes away. Is that George Mason? That's George Mason. Okay. Um, and they sent a, an awesome email out about their school's bobblehead collection and a Supreme court justice bobblehead collection. Oh, okay. Hmm. Um, cause that was a good reason to go to their school. I guess. Yeah. Apparently whatever you can do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all just marketing, I guess. Um, Let's see. You can email the show, help at thinkinglsat.com. We would love to put your issues on our agenda. There are 912 members now in that Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook. Go to Facebook, find Thinking LSAT, join the club there. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. The show is at Thinking LSAT. I am at N Fox, and Ben is at Olson Benjamin. You can go to strategyprep.com and foxlsat.com to learn about all of our services, including one-on-one -on -one tutoring, which we both do over Skype. We have live classes in uh, DC, that's Ben, and LA and San Francisco, that's me. And we have one-on-one -on -one options as well. Um, the thing that we're probably most excited about these days is the LSAT Demon. Go to lsatdemon.com and you can uh, get an AI LSAT study tool that learns from your mistakes and gives you questions that are appropriate for your level. Anything else you want to talk about, uh, say about the demon, Ben? Yeah, I'm, I would just say that I'm excited about the changes that we just made yesterday. Uh, we keep improving the back end of that. So I know a lot of people won't necessarily see the changes, but we're learning more and more about you and ways to track your progress and to figure out how to serve up questions that are better. I know that Sometimes people run into glitches here and there, um, and we're getting feedback on that and making those changes as quickly as we can. So I wanted to say thank you to everyone who's helping out in that way. Um, but also the changes are happening, and it's exciting. Yeah, we're doing relatively rapid software development. It's been interesting to see that process with the sprints we've been doing. Um, those guys can get done quite a lot in just one day of development. So. If you're using the demon, thank you. Please continue to send us your feedback and we will make it as good as we can make it. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Ben, we're going to Chicago pretty soon. Yes. Are you Very excited? excited about that? Oh, super excited. <laughs> yeah. I can't I wait. love these classes for one and two, we're going somewhere new. I mean, I love New York. I'd be happy to go back, but I'm also excited to go somewhere different. I'm excited to go somewhere different. I'm excited to go to Chicago during baseball season. I'm excited that Anne Levine's going to come. Yes. That's going to be awesome. Is she going to be on tap for Saturday or Sunday? Do you know? Uh, I believe it's Sunday. I think she's visiting her grandmother in town. I think she said her grandmother is there and is 101 years old or something like that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Anne's going to live for a long time. Yeah. Well, Anne's I mean, super she healthy, runs too. marathons, yeah. right? Yeah. Yoga instructor <laughs> and everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's going to be awesome, man. That that, that is that's going to be a super great class. Mm -hmm. We're going to do prep test eighty five, which isn't even released yet, but I can't wait to get my hands on that. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be at DePaul University Lincoln Park campus. 
Yep. Cool. And uh, I guess people go to thinkinglsat.com to sign up for that class. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. We're going to have some social stuff uh, Friday and Saturday. You'll hear more about that via the Facebook group. And of course, if you sign up for the class, you'll hear uh, direct updates about the eating and drinking portions of the program. But uh, if you sign up now, you'll get a bunch of materials in the mail and you'll get some assignments on the back end of uh, Ben's website and you can start doing some uh, pre-course work. It's not necessary, but it would be great if you could do some of that pre-course work. And then we'll see you October 20th and 21st in Chicago. Yeah. Awesome. A couple quick shout outs about what's been going on on the Thinking LSAT Facebook group. First, um, Ezra, who you might remember from one of the personal statements that we roasted. Um, the, the man with kind eyes. <laughs> Ezra. Ezra is not the man with kind eyes. Ezra was <laughs> writing about the man with the kind eyes, which, by the way, that personal statement did win funniest personal statement in the uh, poll that I put up on Facebook. Yeah, yeah I saw that. That was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, handy victory for that one, by the way. Um, I thought that the Billy Madison of swim class might have a ha- have more of a chance, but it got blown out of the water. Haha, <laughs> water by um, the man with the kind eyes. Anyway, um, Ezra has uh, started a personal statement review group for members of the Facebook group. And you basically put your email address onto this one Facebook post and he'll add you to the personal statement review group. And there are already 50 people in it and they are currently reviewing together, reviewing five personal statements. So if you want the man who wrote the man with kind eyes (laughs) to to look at your personal statement, he's learned from his mistakes. Uh, And he would be uh, anyway, there's there's a bunch of people collaborating there on personal statements. And I think it's a great idea. Um, yeah, it's a great idea to get feedback on your personal statement from people who don't know you and will therefore probably be more willing to tell you how good or bad it sounds from their perspective, right? When people, when friends and family read your personal statement, they know so much about you that they fill in the gaps when things don't make sense uh, or they give you the benefit of the doubt. And so I think this is good. Hopefully, yeah, Or they just want to be nice to you. Or they just want to be nice to you and keep the peace, right? Oh, it sounds great. Good luck. Well, it's, it's lazy to just be like, it's very easy to be like, yeah, oh yeah, that's great. Yeah. It looks great. Yeah, sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, point yeah. out one or two, like, oh, well you could maybe say this instead or whatever. Or typos. Say something. Right. Point out and a then, couple typos. <laughs> but, but overall it's just like, oh, great, great, great. Yeah. It's great. You know, that's what your friends and family are, are, I mean, and it's understandably cause they don't want to be a dick to you, but, um, if you send in the personal statement to be roasted on the show, or if you sign up for our personal statement service, which you can do at thinkinglsat.com, you will get fully roasted. I mean, that's what you're paying us for, mm-hmm. is to be as critical of your personal statement as the law schools are going to be when they read it. Yeah. So hopefully that's what's going on in the Facebook group. I, I haven't seen what they're... I mean, I'm not involved in it at all, but I hope that they are um, you know, not like mean about it, but just honest mm-hmm. right and it is yeah. a bunch of strangers so it should be should be 
Cool. Um, we also have a quick update here about, oh yeah, this, um, there's a link on the Facebook group about the law school applicant who sued Duke. Um, the headline is Duke law applicant does not take the LSAT sues Duke after his application is dismissed. So if you want to get some laughs about somebody who thinks that they can, uh, get into Duke by suing Duke and not taking the LSAT, go ahead and check that out. I wonder if this applicant ever, you know, wises up and does take the LSAT and then does apply to law school, whether they might write about this legal journey in their personal statement. It would be a big turnoff, right? Like, (laughs) oh, dear God, we're looking at someone who just sued law schools. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But all the insights that they might glean from this litigation Mm -hmm. journey um, might also wind up in their personal statement. One thing that we say a lot is that they're, they're reading your personal statement to just double check, to make sure you're not a crazy person, (laughs) you know, or to check your professional judgment to check just to see if you are, have good judgment. And the second you start writing in your personal statement about a lawsuit that you filed against law schools, (laughs) I think that they're going to think that you're crazy and, or, um, just at least have bad judgment. For, yeah. for for doing that in the first case, but also for writing about it as if it was a selling point. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one thing that I think people miss a lot. It's it's and it's it's such a simple, such a simple idea. But you're supposed to be selling yourself. Yeah, you're supposed to be you're supposed to be writing good things about yourself. And so that I don't I'm not sure that that would be. Yeah, okay, you, you learned about the legal system. But it's also just carries with it such a devastating uh, <laughs> negative trait, mm-hmm. litigious <laughs> against law schools. Against law schools. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's go get Doctor Tajani, huh? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So um, with us today on the show is Doctor Riaz Tajani. Riaz has a PhD in social anthropology from Princeton and a JD from USC, and he's the author of a book called Law Mart, Justice, Access, and For-Profit Law Schools. Riaz, thanks for coming to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So um, I have a bunch of questions. We found you because of the Above the Law podcast, and uh, you were on in July. When that podcast recorded, there was some litigation going on. Um, can you tell us, do you have an update on uh, the, the for-profit law school litigations? Yeah, a little bit. Um, just to sort of fly over view, I think, you know, since that, um, that podcast was recorded, one of the main class action suits filed, coming out of the school based in um, North Carolina ha- has since settled for an amount that was uh, quite small by everyone's standards considering the amount of harm that was done. So that's kind of the biggest thing. And I actually spoke to some of their um, uh, those attorneys well before that, and it sounded like um, they were sort of uh, reaching the end of their resources and kind of looking for some uh, you know new material and um, a little bit of a, of, a, of, a, of a reboot. But anyway, it's, so in the end, it, it looks like it settled, and um, the amount was just shockingly low considering uh, – how much was at stake and also how deep the, the, the potential pockets were there. Sorry to interrupt you really quick, but do you mind stepping back and just telling us a little bit about what exactly they were being sued for and what the amount was and why, 
I don't know what you were expecting in terms of why you think that's low. Well, I mean, so you're talking about an entire <clears throat> law school. So this was uh, Charlotte School of Law, one of the um, three in the stable of for-profits owned by Infola, uh, it, itself owned by, uh, I believe it's, um, well, it was Sterling uh, Capital Partners. So um, the in, what happened is back about a year and a half ago, uh, the school had its accreditation um, withdrawn or, 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 or put on hold because of some um, reporting practices that were considered to be uh, misleading. So ABA, I think, puts their accreditation on hold. The Department of Education then um, stops the flow of federal monies. By that time, uh, it's under the, the new Secretary of Education, DeVos, who's typically friendly towards for-profits, but in this case, um, the rules you know, um, mandated that the money, the, the tap be shut off. And then I think some relief was granted to certain students that m- more monies were released. But in the end, the model is just not sustainable, obviously, if, um, if, if federal money can't flow in. So uh, obviously, that puts all the students there um, dependent on that at risk of um, losing their erstwhile investment into their program. And so um, the school is supposed to file a teach out plan and kind of um, you know, set those students up to be uh, passed on or finish elsewhere. And um, I think in the process of doing that, handled it, you know, uh, kind of poorly. So, and, and meanwhile, while that's going on, one of the former faculty members from their files, a whistleblower suit uh, as well for the misuse of federal monies. So essentially the class action is a group of the students from that school coming together, um, going after the uh, parent organization uh, for misleading uh, data reporting and kind of, um, uh, some sort of fraudulent inducement to, to be there in the first place. Hmm. Wow. So that sounds like even just putting the accreditation on hold is pretty much the end of the school, right? Because if putting it on hold stops federal dollars, then anyone who's relying on federal dollars, which would be, I imagine, a huge proportion of the student body, can't go to school anymore. So then it's pretty much over. Yeah, I think that's that's sort of the crux of the matter that you're taking a public source for, you know, uh, funding for what's essentially a public good, and uh, the, these uh, companies had ways of, uh, cha- you know, funneling that money, and um, um, you know, offering students a certain amount of value, but that value being questionable, increasingly questionable over time, uh, but essentially taking public uh, resources and privatizing them in the form of investor returns. But uh, but as far as it being the end, um, one of the things that's still happening is a, a, a lawsuit by those uh, two schools against the ABA for having removed uh, its accreditation in the first place. So it's sort of still an ongoing saga a little bit, but that school did have to shut its doors. Hmm. Well, I, I, that, that whole thing just fascinates me. I mean, not that we're fans of for-profit law schools or anything, but um, – that that's really interesting, Nathan. I don't mean to interrupt. I know you had a bunch of no. Other questions. I, the the whole thing is just mind blowing to me. Law school. I mean, um, the biggest sort of hallmark is the movement of a uh, certain amount of the proceeds off off sites to investors somewhere else, essentially a private equity um, uh, fund. Um, people who've put in capital. 
um, on the front end with the expectation of, and the way private equity works is the expectation is uh, very high rates of return on investment. So really, what's the difference? You know, um, certain decisions that would normally be made in-house or um, on, a, on a university campus are very much uh, uh, being dictated or even outsourced to a parent organization, uh, to people with business degrees in a headquarters somewhere else rather than to lawyers and um, necessarily local administrators. And I think, I mean, you could break down and, and parse some of the other differences, but uh, based on my uh, three years of, of studying them, this is sort of the biggest thing. One of these for-profit law schools. Yeah, this is true. And my, my training is in, I'm both a lawyer and an anthropologist. Anthropology relies on a method called participant observation. And so um, you couldn't do it any other way, really. I mean, you could, you know, the, the people, you know, Tamanaha's great book, Failing Law Schools is, I mean, he's a lawyer, of course, and he's, he's a professor. So he's also writing from the inside. But if you were to write an outsider account, of the for-profits um, or any of these campuses, it wouldn't it wouldn't be anthropology in the way that um, we've been trained to do. So there's supposed to be an ethic there that by gaining proximity to the people you're studying, you learn to you know uh, first of all sympathize with what they're going through. You sympathize with all the stakeholders on the ground there. You don't just sort of beat them with a stick from the outside using you know external ethical values, but really try to get into the hearts and minds of what people are experiencing there. that ring a bell to you that does yeah mm -hmm. my bell i guess when i listened to the the episode on above the law podcast is when you mentioned something about the aba potentially not having enough money to actually fight these lawsuits right and i think uh um Ellie and Joe were um, were saying that as well. That there's whispers out there about them kind of running running low. There's been, <coughs> excuse me, in more recent weeks, uh, some sort of reorganization of the, uh, the the committee to better deal with these kinds of problems. So potentially they're working on it. But it's true that um, you're talking about a nonprofit quasi regulator organization, you know, subcommittee going up against a multi-billion dollar financial institution in terms of the litigation. And so definitely uh, asymmetrical you know, relation there. So, so what you're saying is that these for-profit law schools really are successful despite the downturn in law school applicants? So the question there is, if, if you don't mind me being a little academic, is how do, how do we define success if you're talking? And sure, sure. Sorry. Let me clarify. Profitable versus, yeah, successful as an <laughs> educational institution. Yes, profitable. Yes. That's what yes. I meant. I mean, that, that's, that's key. I mean, they wouldn't have gotten into it in the first place. They, they, they'd done their research. They realized that uh, higher ed and law schools especially have very few um, well, relatively lower fixed costs compared to other kinds. Sure. You know what I mean? So in terms of, mm -hmm. I mean, having been on the ground in these uh, schools, very, you know, bare bones kind of academic institution. You know, there's no marble staircase. There's no, um, not to say they're not nice and clean and stuff, but they're, you know, they seem like the kind of places that could be gone in a week, you know, <laughs> like um, they could close up shop and uh, sell off, you know, the computers. So it's, it, there's, um Yes, there's like lower fixed costs. The amount of money that comes in the door is, is enormous. As you know, the tuition being charged at um, some of those schools is 
on par with uh, Yale and Columbia in terms of the, the uh, uh, sticker price. And, um, uh, and, 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 you know, one thing is that their students are somewhat of a captive audience. They really wouldn't get in elsewhere. So the schools tr historically didn't offer that much of a discount rate either. So, um, yeah, they, they, they had their formula. Hmm. So I guess what I'm confused about is um, one thing that you mentioned on the Above the Law podcast was that these schools build themselves as schools that are increasing diversity by accepting students who otherwise wouldn't get into law school. And because they're doing that, they need to or should change their curriculum or at least have their curriculum more focused on bar-related subjects so that when the students leave law school, they're more likely to pass the bar and thus be able to practice law. And I guess if they're making so much money or at least making <laughs> some sort of profit and they have the flexibility to change their curriculum to focus on bar-tested subjects, I don't understand why they couldn't be successful and actually accomplish this goal of increasing diversity. It seems like they they could offer something that's not necessarily out there, at least among the top law schools, uh, law schools that are more like trade schools that focus on the bar exam and specifically on the skills that you would need as a practicing lawyer, more so than I think law schools tend to focus on. Yeah, it's a really good point, good question. And it, it one thing is it answers the other question as to why did any professors sign on to, to, to do this, like myself or some of the other? Everyone I worked with there was pretty um, uh, socially conscious, social justice minded. And so we all – and fairly intelligent, not speaking for myself, but the others. And I think you know they, they, we could have a sense that this could work, you know, um, this model. So on the one hand, yes, at the and, and that's the model we stepped into uh, at the beginning before the big uh, bubble sort of burst. What happens though is that um, – as things start to look bleak in the economy, the investors start to get squeamish. And that's the difference here is that because of that um, uh, additional variable in the mix, another set of stakeholders, if you will, if you're talking kind of the world of business, uh, there's another audience that they have to speak to. And that it's, it's, it's precisely that um, uh, conversation or that speaking to that audience that disrupts what was previously working successfully. I mean, we talk about bar passage rates prior to this in the 90s and 80s, 80 percent, you know, um, coming coming out of some of those schools, uh, plummeting, you know, years later down to 20 and 30 and 20 percent. So um, it's because of this sort of, I don't know if interference is too strong a word, but at least distraction of having to satisfy people who could pull their capital at any moment, um, wanting to sort of quell their fears that, uh, okay, are we or are we not responding to the, the market downturn? And wanting to want, wanting to make it look like, yes, we are responding very swiftly by shaking up the curriculum, by shaking up the way classes are taught in a way that goes against the original model of teaching to the bar. Uh, or, at or at least, or at least, you know, complicates it in a major way, and that's that's what, what we're seeing. I, I was curious about that when I listened to the show. Did they switch? Is it like marketing guys that got involved and said, "Oh, we need to we need to print some new glossy brochures, so let's switch the curriculum to focus on, you know, some fake like entertainment law or something like that"? Is that what happened? Um, yeah, that's a sort of simplified version, but it's sort of close to that. It's that um, you had people who previously were not at, at all involved with curriculum decisions coming in 
and saying that guys this needs to be done you had new, new committees being set up consisting of okay a few academics but quite a few of non-academic you know personnel including marketing including career services including these other people and saying we need a new curriculum guys and go out and do it and you're looking at the makeup of that committee thinking wow most of these people normally have you know they don't have competence or they don't have the um they're it's not their mission to be dealing with uh academic decisions like this what's going on and so yes um you know pr something pretty close to in fact i think in the book i have documented the phrase uh mark the marketing department is chomping at the bit to get going with this that was you know from one of the meetings so yes there's pressure to kind of put these things into um uh PR materials and get it out there as quick as possible. It's it's surprising to me that teaching to the bar was not perceived as something that would be in their financial interest since you <laughs> right. could then advertise your bar passage rates despite, I don't know, challenges elsewhere. Maybe that's exactly the problem, that they knew that they were going to be admitting people who were not going to be able to pass the bar. And so they, they were like, well, we can't talk about bar passage rates because we're not going to have those. Right, there's that, and you have to remember one other uh, one of the other by, uh, byproducts of, of slicing and dicing the curriculum away from the simple bar teaching is that um, the way it was done would force students to stay in the school for the three years instead of transferring out. They were having large transfer attrition problems. You know, for the for the students, it's no problem at all. I, I taught many of those students, and I saw quite a few of them go on to like top tier law schools. So. We were all, everyone was happy about it except for the business office. And so uh, if from their perspective, you know, they're hoping that something can be done to, uh, you know, close that gate. And one of those things was to slice up the curriculum in a way that the transcripts would, wouldn't be recognizable to uh, easily transfer out. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jesus. So you're like, you're not taking torts and crim and that type of stuff in the first year. So then you can't transfer. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's a pretty interesting Twist. Okay. I know that, or my sense is that your focus is on for-profit law schools, but I, I suspect that a lot of our listeners are sitting here listening to this and saying, okay, well, I'm going to avoid for-profit law schools. But what about uh, not-for-profit law schools that are similarly ranked, that maybe don't have a ranking or at least from what I understand have low bar passage rates? I, I would be very hesitant to encourage anyone to go to any of those schools. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, some of the lessons that have come out over the last, well, I mean, some of it's just common sense, but uh, really the focus on looking at uh, return on investment when you choose to go to a law school in terms of, you know, um, what it's going to cost you and the likelihood of gainful employment on the out, on the back end. And, you know, there's a series, uh, I can't remember now the organization, but they release a list every year or two about um best and worst value law schools in the country. And of course, these for-profits generally make that list, but so do quite a few of nonprofit and um, private nonprofit law schools. So it's uh, that those calculations still stand, you know, um, now there's fewer for-profits on those lists, but you're right, they should be making the same calculation um, no matter what. We've heard some, um, the uh, LSAC is very excited about the, the uh, what they perceive as an uptick in the, um, applications and they, they 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 believe that the quality of applicants is dramatically higher this cycle do you do you have any update on what's going on right now yeah i mean i was just looking at that earlier today it's uh there seems to be like a yes there seems to be a bump in the uh 
160 plus range of LSAT takers. This is probably, as you guys could um, speculate yourselves, um, related to things going on politically and, and economically out there. Then there seems to be a um, sort of softer, longer term rise at the very bottom in the 120 to 150 range. And then there seems to be a kind of long-term decline in the 150 to 160 range. So, I mean, just real kind of quick uh, sort of summary of that, the, the, the overall pool is getting probably a little better and, and, and getting a boost from kind of the more intellectual and policy-driven students that will end up at the top schools. But it doesn't look like um, too much of a big change in the uh, 120 to 160 category that sort of in other words like the, the the pool is still heavily comprised of lower performing students so what that's going to mean is probably still pretty good but you know better chances to place higher if you're in that range whereas the at the, at the very top um, uh, things will, will will continue to be the same I think you mentioned a bimodal distribution of what, what you perceived as a bimodal distribution of quality of students at, at the for-profit law school you were teaching at yeah can can you talk a little bit about that and and what what differentiated your your best students from your your students who you know I'm sure you had some people in the class that you just thought well boy this this person's never going to be able to pass a bar exam can you talk about the difference yeah such a good question I mean I so I'm I'm looking at I'm thinking back on the dozens of students per year that would transfer out to like a what is now a top thirty law school so you're going from like you know fourth tier to top thirty and. I remember as they would approach me, you know, in terms of what their kind of plans were and what they where they saw themselves. I would I, it shocked me how often I heard the story like, "Hey, professor, uh, you know, I graduated summa cum laude from undergraduate, but and I sat for the LSAT, but I only took I only studied for like a day or two, or <laughs> I didn't realize I was going to take it until like the week before, and people just wow. not planning properly, you know. So um, I think if I if I had to just generalize, I would say. It was a fairly common story at that law school that, yes, you had people who maybe had been trying for years and couldn't get in somewhere else um, and, you know, nothing disrespectful about that. And then you have these people who kind of spur of the moment or because no one in their family was a lawyer, didn't know how to do it properly or uh, totally underestimated the impact that the LSAT has on their careers, just sort of like winged it, came in. And they, you know, approached it like, okay, well, I'll at least get started and then see how I perform. And and those are like, you know, uh, high, high achieving students who just didn't approach the uh, whole application process as seriously as some others might. And so I think that heavily accounts for why such a uh, distribution um, uh, bimodal that I saw. So if you do the LSAT correctly, it actually is or could be relatively predictive of your success. But the people who are not doing poorly on it maybe are doing poorly on it for reasons other than their actual ability to perform well on the test. Yeah, there's at least a sizable chunk uh, that, that 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 describes well. Yeah, and what, so you're saying something that we've said on on our show a million times, which is if you breeze into one of these schools, it might work out okay for you. But if you if you have to try really hard to squeak into one of these schools you're probably in big trouble. I think that's really fair. And I think to, as far as breezing in, you know, um, and increasingly since this has all happened, they do offer, you know, full packages to some, um, some, some students. They do want to get the top, the best scores they can in the door. So if you're not worried about name and if you're, you know, just, um, and you want to, 
go through it with the full ride, it, it could still work for you. Um, but really, that's a small, small um, subset. And what happens to the stars at a school like that? I mean, when, when you have those top students, I mean, do they they do better, I assume, in in class and they do better, they get better opportunities from the school as well? Well, yeah. So the schools were trying to offer, you know, have some kind of um, pipeline straight into a job type of deal that some of the, the top ranked schools have. They were trying to work on those. But as you can imagine, it's way harder to finagle that stuff um, with the with the name. And I talked to people out in the community and students who had worked with people out in the community and there just wasn't the same you know, kind of respect. Uh, so the name alone was pretty damning. But the schools were trying to get sort of secured positions for at least the, the the top of the top. Um, but, um, but I also heard stories of like, you know, the, uh, sort of, um, top scoring student, you know, number one ranked student in the class. Someone, I, I remember having a student who applied to transfer after the first year, got admitted to Berkeley to bolt and had a full ride at one of these schools and chose not to leave. And, on the, on the belief that he was set anyway because he's top of the class. And I think that student still struggled um, to get a job uh, in the first year after finishing. So it's by no means a guarantee. Uh, to, well, that student had a full ride to Berkeley. No, and, no they had a, a transfer admission to Berkeley. Mind you, mind, mind oh, okay. you coming out of a four, you know, four, a four, fourth tier school, uh, but, cho- but chose yeah. to stick with uh, the full ride at a fourth tier school. Mm. And, um, Got it. I mean, that's a tough one. That's a, that, that's, I, I feel for that person. But like, uh, the point was that the, the top scoring student couldn't make it work right away. Wow. Dr. Johnny, you said, um, the word erstwhile <laughs> a little bit ago, you want to define that for our listeners? <laughs> Can you refresh my, uh, recollection on what, what did I say that in relation to? <laughs> I believe the context was, you think it maybe means something like purported. Yeah, I think. Oh, I suppose it. I, I must have been talking about um, erstwhile uh, high uh, high bar passage rates. I think that's what it was, and by that I must have just mean up until that time. Up until that time. Up until that time. Yeah. Okay, interesting. All right, we like to uh, try to expand our listeners' vocabulary since oh, they're nice. all studying for the LSAT. So when a word comes up that I'm not quite so familiar with, uh, or Ben's not, we like to like to point that out. Good. Awesome. Um, Dr. Tajani, thank you so much for coming on the show. The name of the book, again, is uh, Law Mart. And is there anywhere that they go uh, to find more information about you? Website, Twitter, anything you want to shout out? Sure. I mean, I do have a personal website. Um, I'm probably the best would be to start with the Amazon author page, you know, for the book. And I am on Twitter. And that's it. Yeah, the usual sources. Okay, we'll put up a bunch of links to uh, your Amazon to the book and your your author page and all that type of stuff on thinkinglsat.com. Okay. Cool. Thanks a lot for coming. Thank you guys. Yeah, it's been thank great. You. All right. Want to get into these emails? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Do it. Okay. Hi Ben. Just wanted to update you on my exam and was wondering if you could give me some advice. I took the September LSAT and had a lot of test center issues. I tried to tell myself that these distractions were probably not a big deal and not and to not make excuses, but I was unable to do so. All the attorneys and peers that I asked agreed. Here is the email I sent to LSAC about my test center complaint. Below is a list of distractions that occurred in our testing room. Bullet point number one. Proctor's cell phone went off nearly 10 times. Random pings, a cell phone call, etc. This happened over the duration of the first two sections. 
Proctor proceeded to, quote, silence phone after a few occurrences, but the sounds continued until the end of the second section. Proctor finally turns off phone after second section ends. Other Proctors did nothing but giggle to themselves. Students became so irritated that there were three instances where students yelled out across the room to the Proctor to turn off silence phone and went up to the front to tell the Proctor. Wow, this this is an engaged group. I like this. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I like the entertainment, I guess. Despite this, every time the phone rang, as students, including myself, looked up, the Proctor put her hands up as if she was signaling to us that there it was not her fault. <laughs> I don't know how to control my phone (laughs) instead of turning off the phone altogether. It's seriously stupid. Students are infuriated because of the amount of distractions and noise going on. Proctor tries to justify actions by saying that she added 30 seconds to the end of the section. Phone was not the official timer of the test. Okay. She continues, another proctor proceeds to try to open and eat chips during a section, I believe section four after the break. Students in the front of the room, which was myself, were distracted and other proctors again giggled at the scenario. Proctors from other testing rooms who finished the exam early proceeded to come in and out throughout the last section and writing sample. Proctors in the room did not respond appropriately or quietly. Proctors congregated in the front and were being so loud during the first section that students in the front row requested to to move to the back of the room. Yeah, this sounds like a real horrible set of proctors. I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, it's a bummer. Overall, all of these occurrences were extremely distracting during the exam period. It was very difficult for me, as it probably was for my peers, to pay attention to the task at hand. As a result, I found myself running out of time and having to reread sentences each time something happened. Do you know what testing center this was? I don't know what this was. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. So she continues, I just received a response from the LSAC with the following options. One, extension to cancel score. Uh, It will look the same on the report as a normal cancel, but they will give me a free retake in November or January, both dates, which I cannot take, okay? Second option, to release the score, okay? In both options, I can opt in to have LSAT attach a supplemental letter regarding the test center situation. She then goes on, what do you suggest is the best option? I definitely do not feel like I did my best, But at the same time, with the three test bar lifted, it seems like it would be no harm to keep the score on record because I don't know what I got at the end of the day. So I suggested to her to keep the score, to have LSAC release her score and make it official, and to add the supplemental letter. So if it wasn't as good as she wanted it to be, it's already explained away. Do you have any thoughts on that? I know of at least one other student who got this exact same response from LSAC. Yeah. So this seems to be their, I mean, this is almost like (laughs) they have a form response now to these complaints because they get so many of these complaints Yeah. because their proctors are so bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a bummer. The decision to cancel or not cancel, you know, the, the, I've been helping people with this decision for 10 years now. Yeah. And more often than not, I find myself, my answer is almost always now, it doesn't matter. Sure. It just doesn't matter. You think it's like the biggest decision of your life, but if you're asking the question, should I cancel? It almost never matters. The reason why it doesn't matter is that law schools only care about your highest score 
And this test was probably not your highest score. So you're probably going to take it again anyway. And the only thing that's going to matter is what happens on a retake. So, I mean, I'm happy to, you know, try to advise people like this. I think you're probably right, Ben, keep the score, put the letter on your file, but like, are the schools really going to read this letter? Do they give a shit? most likely not, or they're only mm-hmm. going to give a shit once you get a higher LSAT score on your next attempt. Yeah. So the thing to probably be thinking about more than it's, it's just like, you know what? Flip a coin. Like, do you really want to cancel your score? Okay, fine. Then cancel it. <laughs> like, I wouldn't help you sleep. Yeah. Right. Like I wouldn't lose sleep over having a bad score on my record because I know that I have to take it again. And I know that law schools only care about a higher score. Mm-hmm. If law schools only care about a higher score, then I feel like, well, there is still some chance that I did well on this test. And then you're done. Yeah. I say you might as well keep it. But the truth is, if you cancel it, (laughs) either way, you're taking the test again. And the only thing that's really going to matter is what you score when you take it again. So I just don't care. Is that how you feel about it? That's how I feel about it. And so then that makes me also just want to keep it because it's like, hey, you might as well see it. (laughs) Yeah. Right? (laughs) Right. It's like, it's a coin flip. And also, just don't fucking cancel your score. Just <laughs> you sat for the test, and and I also like I just don't like people having even the option. I wish they just didn't even give the option. I wish it wasn't even a thing. Yeah, I hear you. Like, why, why, why should we have this choice? Either you didn't show, or you took it and it, you failed, and now you need to explain if you want to <laughs> the the fact that they give the choice makes students think about it a lot. And so then students are thinking about it while they're taking the test or they're thinking about it. It's I think that they meant it as like a, we're being nice to the students here. We're sure. giving you an op, you know, it's like, Hey, this is a really human thing we're doing is giving you the option to cancel your score. But I, I think it almost has the exact opposite effect. Yeah. Where people now haven't, they are, they don't commit. So they're in it, they're in the test thinking about, well, should I cancel? And then we even have people who like quit on the spot or quit during the test, you know, just walk out and cancel their score yeah. because I don't know, because they've been thinking about canceling their score instead of just like, Hey, be prepared or don't take the LSAT. And if you're prepared, well then just go with it. Just, just do your best. Yep. I don't know. LSAT needs to get better at the proctoring. <laughs> So that they don't have to have a standard form response when the proctors fuck everything up. Yeah, well, actually, it's interesting to read this letter from LSAC, this form letter that you're talking about, because they they try to justify their failure. Can I read some of it? Oh, yeah, I, I, I was hoping to read some of this because oh. I, I think it's got some interesting information. Yeah, go for it. Uh, LSAC understands and regrets that you were distracted by the incident cited in your correspondence. Notice just form form letter there. Yeah, and overly loyerly and Yeah. Well it gets pedantic. even more loyerly. LSAC utilizes more than seven hundred test centers worldwide. Do they need a hyphen there and worldwide? I don't think they do because it's not modifying a noun. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think worldwide is one word. Oh, is it one word? It might I think be, it yeah. can be one word. I'm gonna word. delete this right now and see what happens. <gasps> Nope, no autocorrect. It yeah. is one word. Yeah, what worldwide is one word, LSAC. Also, don't put utilizes. Oh my goodness. Never. <laughs> it's a word that could be destroyed and no one would suffer. <laughs> no. 
LSAC utilizes more than 700 test centers worldwide with over 1,000 testing rooms in use during any given administration. Unfortunately, LSAC cannot monitor every test site to ensure that staff are following all policies. The overall site supervisor has been alerted about the problems with the testing staff and assures us that this will not be an issue at future administrations. You, you just added to that there. You're helping them out. This is horrible. Oh, I said assures us that this because that's what you would say. But yeah, assures us this will not be an issue at future administrations. You know what else? That's a lie right there. Yeah, that's a lie. I mean, I bet they did alert the overall site supervisor. But the Who site supervisor has assures it. us that this will not be an issue at future administrations. <laughs> that's 100% bullshit right there. <laughs> Oh my goodness. This is why they need to get out of the stupid tablet plan and go to a testing. I don't understand. Yeah, they're I'm they're just, just acknowledging here that they cannot monitor every test site to ensure that staff are following all policies. Oh, okay. Well, then why don't you outsource it to people who are in the business and can <laughs> <laughs> who professionally do that literally every day of the year. Okay. Um due to your expressed concern, we have placed a temporary hold on the release of your score to allow you extra time to consider reporting it or canceling it. If you request cancellation, your records will show no reportable score and the quote candidate cancel indication will remain on your LSAT record. If you choose to report your score, it will become a permanent part of your record and cannot be canceled at your request for any reason. LSAC makes no exceptions under any circumstances to our policies on reporting or canceling scores. Wait a second. But this is an exception because they're going to extend the deadline. Um, so they should have rewritten this sentence. LSAC makes no exceptions under any circumstances to some of our policies on reporting or canceling scores. <laughs> LSAC I mean, makes no exceptions LSAT, right? <laughs> under any circumstances except for the current circumstance. <laughs> the current aforementioned circumstance. And possibly other circumstances to our policies. Okay. <laughs> Possibly others. <laughs> oh my goodness. Should you decide to cancel your September 2018 score, LSAC will register you for any remaining t LSAT this testing year, asterisk, Ooh. at no additional charge to you. If you scan, how far am I going to have to go down to the asterisk? It's way down there. Whoa, yeah. If you have already registered for an upcoming 2018-2019 LSAT, a refund will be issued upon cancellation of your June score and no additional registration will be available. Okay. Can I can I point something out here? Holy shit. Yeah. So, one thing that happens to a lot of people when they start practicing law is they, they write briefs and memos and they have to, um, they don't have to, but a lot of times they will put in footnotes, right? They'll be making some argument and then they'll have some footnote. It could be a citation or it could be a reference to another case or something like that. But one thing that tends to happen is that attorneys tend to over footnote everything, which makes it very annoying for judges and judges explicitly complain about this. They say, hey, look, I'm reading your argument for your client and every other sentence, I have to scan down to the bottom of the page, <laughs> read your freaking footnote, and then go back. And so the rule, if you're a good a good writer, a good attorney, is to only put in footnotes absolutely necessary but ex 
secondary information. You're saying the judge should know about this or it does have some sort of persuasive value, but it really is not essential to the flow of the message or what I'm trying to say here. But I do feel like if the judge wants to learn more about this, they can find it easily here, which basically means almost everything except for citations should not be footnoted. And even a lot of citations go right into the text. And so when I see footnotes like this, I'm just thinking to myself, why? Why are you dragging me to the bottom of this letter? And then because you have no idea what the footnote is. Is it really important? Right? Like you're going to be you're going to be fined, by the way, in the next week, if you don't respond to this letter, you have to check it out. So just if it's something you need to say, just say it in the next sentence. They could have easily said this in the next sentence. Oh, by the way, if you've already registered, we'll refund you. Yeah, that would not have been difficult to do. I mean, that's what they did in the previous paragraph, right? They have a bunch of if-then statements. If you do this, you know, this will happen. If you do that, this will happen. If it's important, just say it. Anyways, sorry, so, no. side note, random yeah. note. Yep. Um, it continues. Your response must be recorded on page two of this letter and received by LSAC no later than October 4th, or your score will automatically be released. It is your responsibility to ensure your response is received by LSAC before the deadline. If you do not cancel your score, you will need to pay for any future registrations. If you choose to take the free test, you must remember to upload a new photo in your online account. Additionally, LSAC can include a letter in your file to inform the law schools to which you apply of the circumstances under which you took the test and your concern regarding their effect on your score. Please indicate on page two if you wish LSAC's letter to be included. We appreciate that you brought this matter to our attention and gave us the opportunity to investigate. We wish you success in your pursuit of a career in law. Sincerely, Test Administration Group Law School Admission Council. What? what, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, scores cannot be withheld. So this is page two. Oh, this is the form that you have to fill out. Mm. Center number. Scores cannot be withheld from reporting indefinitely, and therefore we request an immediate response. Please indicate your in attention below and return this page with your actual signature to test administration via fax with a number or scan and send as an email with an email address center complaint at lsac.org oh my gosh which is an email address they wouldn't have to have if they just used a professional um or you can send it in by mail but we have to receive it no later than october 4th 2017 Whoa, that's in the past. That's in the past. Please use black ink only, no pencil. (laughs) It's like, disregard our fucking typo. And then also, by the way, we're not going to let you use pencil on this form. Oh, God. And then a checkbox for either release my September 2018 LSAT score or cancel my September 2018 LSAT score and register me for... November 17, 2018, or January 26, 2019, at center numbers. Whoa. Then we have more asterisks. Oh, dear. Oh, if both locations are full, you will be placed at the closest available center. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. Anything else about all that? I think the one takeaway I had from this, or at least key takeaway, is that if you're in this situation and you complain to LSAC, they will... um, 
give you this option to add a letter to your report. I had never heard of that before. Yeah, that's new. And also, they're, I mean, they are paying for your, uh, it looks like they're offering to pay for your retake, which is, which is nice. I think we already knew that, but, um, yeah, you get a free test. So maybe that's if you're debating. That's what we've yeah. always said is that it's like best case, you're going to get a free retake. Truth is there are going to be distractions. It is not going to be a perfectly silent testing environment Mm -hmm. and you need to get used to just tuning out all that other shit. I'm sorry. I, you know, they should let you use earplugs, man. Why don't they just let you use earplugs? Like how hard is it to just let people use earplugs? And then when the proctor says time's up, like they just say it loudly or something or going around the room and shake everybody. I don't know, but like just, let people use earplugs. You would, you would eliminate a lot of these concerns. Yeah. But then people would complain about something else too. I don't know. It's like, I, my stop administrating, administrating tests. That's, that's really the solution. Yeah. It's, do it's it at the, a professional center. Yeah. It's the clean, it cleans everything up. It takes care of all these problems. Yeah. You can take the test as many times you want. Yeah. It fixes all their problems. But, you know, they've got, it's like now they have like this entrenched bureaucracy that's, well, and they're just a bunch of lawyers anyway. So they're never going to change anything, but they're just going to keep doing what they've been doing forever. Yeah. Okay. Next one. Yeah. From Graham and Andy and Pete. Wow. So three people sent this in. Subject, which law school houses the world's largest Supreme Court bobblehead collection? You, you gotta be kidding me. That's just, that's just amateur. You're collecting them <laughs> and then you're, you're boasting about that. Like, okay, let me go and buy them myself. And whoa, look, I caught up with you. I have all nine su- Supreme court justices. Like what this is, oh, this is, this is annoying. That's the part so this, that, that's the part that like struck me about it was just, yeah, Ben, you're calling it amateur. I, I'm to me, it's like, I look at that and I'm just like, how fucking stupid are we? Yeah. <laughs> like we're are we that dumb is the is the market for a JD are the buyers of JDs that stupid that this is actually going to be like this is going to be a net positive for the school to send out something like this because I aren't there aren't a lot of the people aren't a lot of the applicants seeing this and just being like oh please. Yeah. Like, I would stop hope. wasting my fucking time. Anyway, you're about to throw down lots of money, or at least time, for a degree in which you become a professional. And you're concerned about which school houses the world's largest Supreme Court bobblehead collection. I'm well, curious. Anyways, yeah. When you have the other, you know, there's there's all the there's the other schools sending out their bullshit about. What, pumpkin, pumpkin spice, spice lsat whatever you know like it's just again how stupid are we so now it's like all the people in the admissions offices are like oh we're going to be the fun hip cool law school and, you know and they do that they also have like have you seen the emails about the puppies and bullshit that they bring to campus no oh no. it's in, during finals we bring we have puppies oh, that stress, we, puppies? To, to stress puppies and because we're such a good happy law school it's like what the fuck are we what are you doing what <laughs> oh my god it's just yeah it's it's yay we're getting all our jazzy marketing bullshit in there so that we can sell you something that's going to be totally useless to you 
Uh, okay, so I'm looking up this guy who's mentioned in this, but I, I'll keep reading. So it says, this is the email. It has um, the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School logo and read then the, a picture. Read that micro print at the top of that. What? I can't believe I just scanned over this. Law school is hard, comma, but it should also be a place for imagination, innovation, and whimsical fun. Scalia Law School is just that. Yeah. Because of our bobbleheads. Also, law school should be a place for whimsical fun. Whimsical fun. Really? Really? You know, this reminds <laughs> me of when Anne Levine came and she spoke to my students. And one thing she said is that a lot of people try to write these personal statements and they try to um, include these narratives and make their story catchy and interesting. And she's like, at the end of the day, law schools really just want someone who's credible and serious about what they're getting into. And you don't need to have this catchy, clever story. If you have one and it's serious, or I mean, it's legit, it's sincere, then great. But a lot of people don't. Most of us are just normal. And we are just trying to think about what we want to do with our lives and our careers. And telling a serious, credible story uh, can have a better impact on your application than trying to be all cutesy. And I read this and I'm like, are you telling me that there are going to be applicants who are more credible and serious than the law school itself? I mean, George Mason is a great law school. I don't understand who's writing these, who's sending these out, and what the hell they're thinking. It's a great law school? It's a good law school, yeah. Okay. You just made me downgrade it to good, though. Yeah, I think it probably <laughs> deserves that downgrade. I don't. Although, well, no, see, I'm trying to separate the, the goodness of the law school from its marketing practice. Because they are different. Well, the word great, I think, is going to have to just be... uh, Now that Donald Trump especially has, you know, co-opted it as... as Wait, Donald Trump has done something with George Mason? No, with great. The word great. Oh, with the great... Oh, got it. Yeah, okay, the word has been ruined. So is the word great, by the way. Things that are referred to as great are no longer great. And the... I'm not sure that George... What is... I mean, just... Not that rankings are everything, but what's the ranking on George Mason? It's somewhere in the 30s and 40s. Okay. That, to me, that's like borderline regional law school, right? I mean, that's not... That's not exactly like a, a a law school of national renown. No, but it certainly is a solid law school for okay. a public school that's not super expensive, if I remember correctly. Okay. But I'm going to have to check all that again. So by great, you meant solid law school for a public school that is not... Okay, good. Like people should go here. If they can get in and go here, I am confident in their ability to leave and have a reasonable chance of getting a job if they know what they're doing. Whereas some schools, I would be very nervous about that. Yeah. This- Just don't pay for it because you're, you're, you're sponsoring a bobblehead collection. Yeah, you are, apparently. So let's see what they say here. They have a respectable picture of some female professor explaining uh, maybe tax law here. But in any case, answer. Okay, this is the answer to the subject line, which was, which law school houses the world's largest Supreme Court bobblehead collection? Answer answer is, I don't give a shit. But anyway, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, no one cares. George Mason University, Antonin Scalia Law School, located just minutes from Washington, D.C. 
Okay. Thank you for giving us your full title. <laughs> Scalia Law is number one in Supreme Court bobbleheads because of Professor Ross Davies, founder of the infamous Green Bay Inc., the only U.S. law journal with permission to produce bobbleheads of the United States Supreme Court justices. Oh, well, he's got a monopoly on the on the market. So that's how you won this, this clever um, competition. Professor Davies also teaches a free free 1L course, two credit hours, by the way, each summer to ensure students start their legal education off right. Whoa, wait a sec. I am very confused. Besides gaining access to the largest collection of Supreme Court bobbleheads, Scalia Law students join an incredible community and receive a phenomenal education. <laughs> that is the exact kind of sentence you do not want to write in your personal statement. Yeah, that's just straight telling. It's, yep. just a, it's just a conclusion with no evidence. I mean, the only evidence here, you've presented evidence that you have bobbleheads and you have some infamous green bag incorporated, which is the only U S law journal with permission to produce bobbleheads of the United States Supreme court justices. Wait, what? Like one who cares to, what do you mean permission from whom? And then, okay, this free one L course. So we got questions about that. Yeah. And then you're just going to now say, oh, and we have an incredible community and a phenomenal education with no evidence really for that at all. Yeah. So if you're reading this and you believe all that, you buy into that, then you haven't learned what you should have learned from the LSAT. And maybe law is not right for you. You're just <laughs> accepting arguments without any evidence. Yeah. Anyway. It, this, what, can we find out about this free 1L course? There's no way this is a actually a free it's <laughs> that's what I was trying to figure out is it for potential students who are applying the summer before school starts that doesn't make any sense no way it's free for admitted students so then it's not free no. that's like saying it's free for you know, enrolled 1L <laughs> students which means it's not free <laughs> two credit hours you get two free credit hours <laughs> they're free by the way <laughs> yeah buy this BMW you get free Car washes. Okay. Then you get free AC. It's, it's included yeah, with the free car. Free floor mats. <laughs> All right. So then, so who wrote this? Oh, we don't even know who wrote this. The anonymous emailer continues. Schedule a visit, which is linked, by the way. Take a look for yourself and learn more about our exceptional community. There we go again. More and then there's a picture of, yeah, Ross Davies with looking at his bobblehead of, is that RBG? Um, I, or is I, don't, that, I don't know. I, that's tell. a terrible RB. No, RBG's on the far right. And that's Sandra Day O'Connor. Oh in the middle, yeah. And uh -huh. he's holding, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> okay. Then there's a big link that says apply now. Cause the real point of this whole email was to get people to apply. Yeah. And it concludes with, wow. Some big words here. Learn period challenge period lead. Period. So if you go to GMU, you will learn challenge and lead, apparently. This email sucks. <laughs> what? You know, looking at the top, you know, what? another just, I mean, to nitpick, of course, but the top of this email, it's about Ross Davies 
but you see some woman, right? <laughs> you don't. Yeah. You don't. That's see... the only redeeming quality of this email is a professor who's actually teaching something. There's a professor who's actually teaching at the top, but that's not Ross Davies. The email's about Ross Davies. You scroll down and you get a dude in a in a <laughs> dress shirt with a tie, dorking around with a bunch of bobbleheads. <laughs> I'm sure he's just cool. I'm sure he's a great dude. I'm sure he's awesome. And I'm sorry, Ross Davies for picking on your, but you tell your, tell your admissions office to stop with this bullshit. Did you click on the, apparently the whole email itself links to green bag Inc, which I guess is his company. No, it's a law journal. Oh, it's a law journal. Oh, okay. Here we go. Oh, but yeah. then it's got a whole bunch of for fun. It's a just, it's a cool hip law journal. It's infamous. Apparently it says it was established in 1889 and reestablished in 1997. Whatever the hell that what? means. It's got a bunch of stuff that I'm sure is quite legit. And then it's just got a bunch of like, quirky, fun stuff. I'm sure, whatever. I'm sure this guy is well beloved at his school and he probably is like a great professor. He's pro it's probably awesome, but ugh. okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Graham, Andy and Pete. Yeah. Thanks everybody for sending that. That one got a lot of, a lot of heat. I mean, Hey, so it worked, you know, it worked. We said George Mason a hundred times. Yep. They and, want uh, it's going to get it's they're like, you know what we need? We need a lot of stupid people to apply to our school. So, let's put out this I mean, what type of good app can you imagine any good applicant looking at that and being like, "Oh, hell yeah." Yeah. Okay. One more? Yep. Hi guys. If you use my name, please call me Kate. I know that many people have requested a review of their GPA addendum a few of whom you have already obliged, but I was wondering if you would be willing to help me with mine. I have had a string of significant health problems, two of which coincided with my finals in college. Both times resulted in really awful outcomes for my grades. I have written an addendum that explains this, but I do not want to try and appear as though I am simply providing a random excuse any advice or help you give would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for all you do. And here comes a GPA addendum. It's one paragraph, one dense paragraph. Uh oh, with uh, double spaces after some of one of these sentences. Yeah, and it was in the email too. Double, double, double spaces. I noticed that during college, I suffered two significant health problems that affected my academic performance. The first occurred in the spring semester of my freshman year when I suffered a severe concussion at the end of my NCAA lacrosse season, coinciding with my academic finals. The second occurred in the spring semester of my senior year when I was treated in the emergency room and later hospitalized several days for a neurological disorder during the last week of classes. The severity of both instances impaired me in such a way that I was unable to function to my standard of academic ability and ultimately resulted in poor final performances at the end of each semester. And that's it. So a couple of reactions. One is um, 
this is just more writing stuff, but when you say I suffered two significant health problems, it's almost always more persuasive to actually drop these modifiers, to just say I suffered two health problems. It makes it more factual and thus more grounded and more persuasive. Uh, you say I suffered a severe concussion. I would just say you had a concussion. And then I would add more to this about the actual numbers and facts. Like you're, you're saying, oh, this was significant and this was seer and I had a neurological disorder. And I don't doubt that these problems were severe and serious, but I don't know how they affected your grades because I don't know what your grades were outside of these semesters. And I don't know what your grades were at the end of these semesters. So if you had said something like, hey, I had this GPA for these other semesters, but for this semester and this semester when I had these two problems, my grades were this much lower or something like that. Like I would be able to see, oh yeah, this is actually having an impact. Right now it's all just sort of like, my grades were a lot lower because of these unfortunate circumstances and I just have to believe you. Yep, I, I agree. Cut those modifiers, adjectives and adverbs. You can just get rid of them. Just say what happened. And uh, yeah, the, I, that's the one thing I was wanting was the, re, the recalculation. Yeah. Because that recalculation is a fact. That's a fact that you, you can, you have to calculate it. But if you calculate it, you know, you present it as a fact. Like if, if you just omit these two semesters from my GPA, you know, from my transcripts, here's what my GPA would be. Yeah. Otherwise I don't, I don't hate it. I mean, I'll say a couple good things about it. I, I don't, I don't mind at all that it says the first sentence is I suffered two health problems that affected my academic performance. And then the next sentence says the first, and then sure. the sentence after that says the second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That last sentence, instead of saying the severity of both instances impaired me in such a way, you could just cut all that. Yep. And just put, I was unable to function to my standard academic ability whatever. Yeah. If you remove these semesters from my record, my GPA would be this. Yeah. Yeah. Not, it's not terrible. (laughs) Is that as good as it gets on the show? Not terrible. Yes. Yeah. It's not terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know, we, we give constructive criticism. We're, we're trying to make shit better, right? We're not going to kiss people's ass, tell them how great it is. People who have worked with, Wait, yeah. Go oh God. <laughs> GMU law school is not great. It's, but <laughs> we're we're gonna say it's not terrible. It's not terrible. It's not a for-profit school. It is our highest compliment. Yeah. yeah. No, people who have worked with us on our personal statement service, they 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 will feel this. I mean, we we are just basically saying, hey, this could be better. This could be better. This could be better. This is terrible. Cut it. This is bad. Get rid of it. Yep. This could be better. This could be better. Instead of this, say this. We're not like saying, oh boy, this is so lovely. Oh my God. Wow. I'm, I'm tearing up now as I read that. We're not giving, we're not bullshitting you. We're just giving tips to make it better. So, um, appreciate Kate. Appreciate you writing in, um, one space between sentences. Don't do so much editorialization with your adjectives and adverbs and uh, add that GPA recalculated GPA in there. And I think you're good to go. Yep. Okay. We got time for this last one? Sure, yeah. All right. 
Hey, Nathan and Ben. I've been getting emailed by a ton of schools with free fee waiver offers. Sadly, most of the schools I actually asked, such as Stanford and Columbia, turned me down. Well, how many schools did you ask? And did you just ask the top three or five? <laughs> um, I'm guessing that top schools like Harvard and Stanford don't give out merit-based fee waivers since they already rake in the best applicants. If other schools go out of their way to send me a fee waiver, does that mean I have a very high chance of getting in? Or do they want me to apply just to raise up their stats? Darius. I, 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 I could imagine there's a whole host of reasons if they think that you at all have a chance of being admitted and they're desperate for students, they'll give you a fee waiver and they're probably not thinking too much about how likely you are to succeed. They're just sending them out. I imagine some schools just give these out like candy and don't even think twice. Yeah. I, they, it, this all makes sense to me. The, the Harvard's and Stanford's and, you know, Columbia's of the world. That should be Columbia with a U by the way, Darius. Those schools uh, don't, they don't need to. They, they're, yes, they are already getting all of the top applicants. So they don't, they have plenty of applicants. They don't need more applicants. They don't need to send out emails about bobbleheads. Yeah. Or give fee waivers. But um, yeah, the fact that somebody gives you a fee waiver, it doesn't, they're not just like offering you admission. They're, just, I mean, they want to sell you something very expensive. Ultimately, they want to sell you something very expensive. Yeah. And they might, when you apply, still decide that they actually don't want you that bad. Mm-hmm. But they want you to come. They want you to. They want you to kick the tires. They want you to check them out. They want you to. They want you to jump through some hoops and send them an application. And you know they're willing to not charge you for that. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of stats debating to 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 try to say whether that means you have a very high chance of getting in. Yeah. I mean, all that stuff you can just figure out from the 509 reports and from the law school and LSAT GPA calculator. Mm-hmm. Right. We can't, I don't, I do not think that a fee waiver means, <laughs> yeah. Like Ben says, they are, some schools are just like you, you mention you're like, Hey, can I get, and they're just like handing you the fee waiver. Yeah. You know, almost before you, or literally before you even ask, just because they want you to apply. So that does, I don't think it means anything about your admissions chances. Mm-hmm. Let's wrap it up there. That was episode 160 of the Thinking All Set podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.